Psalms 51. Get there in your Bible if you brought it with you. Good to see some guests tonight. Thank you uh, for being at our midweek service. So thankful that you chose to uh, worship with us here tonight. After uh, preaching Sunday morning on uh, using your giftedness uh, for the for the edification of the body and ministering, uh, my mind was just fresh on on that thought today. And so as I came in here and um, sometimes grieve the fact that that, you know, God's people aren't all assembled in the same room. I'm just quickly reminded uh, that that so many people um, have found their sweet spot of service on Wednesday nights, um, whether that be ministering to young kids or in the nursery um, or upstairs to youth or whatever the case might be. And so it, it's just it's a good it's a good feeling in my heart knowing that that people are, are using their giftedness for the body of Christ everywhere. And uh, I'm thankful you're in here, thankful that that you can be part of the preaching service tonight. We're continuing our series um, praying through. We've, we've talked a lot already about the life of David. We've already went all the way through First Samuel and the Psalms that he wrote based on the narrative uh, that's contained in those chapters. And then last week we skipped ahead to Second Samuel. And uh, that's where this psalm as well is written based on Second Samuel chapter number 11. And we'll get there in just a moment. But Psalms 51 is a, it's a popular psalm. Uh, it's, not, it's not popular because it, it feels good. It's popular because of the story that it surrounds. Psalms 51 is written what, after what I believe to be the most consequential, uh, long-lasting, far-reaching sins of David's entire life. And that's his affair with a woman named Bathsheba. The story is told, as I told you, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's sin in that chapter started with laziness, really. As he decided as the leader of the nation to just stay home instead of going to war with his men. Somebody has accurately said that, that the idle soul is the devil's playground. I believe that to be the truth, and it was the case in David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 11. His laziness progressed to lust as he walked onto his roof and looked across the way and saw a woman bathing. This is a real story. Then his lust gave way to sin. And because of David's power, he leveraged that power to be able to get the attention of that woman down the way. And his servant arranged an opportunity for David to fulfill the lust of his flesh. And he slept with this woman. And, and, and it didn't stop there. He, he found out that the one night stand led to her pregnancy. And he lied about it. He tried to cover it up. He, he, he even went so far as to frame her husband, one of his chief military officers, Uriah. And, and it was awful. David concealed this sin for the better part of a year until finally a daring prophet confronted him about it. To his credit, David owned up to his sin. And Psalms 51 is the result. And so it, it's not popular because reading it makes you feel good. Preaching it makes you feel good. Um, it's just popular because it's a very well-known story that wraps itself around 
this psalm. And here's the truth tonight. We can all relate with David, can't we? What do I mean? Well, we all know how to sin. Just because we get saved, become a child of God, doesn't mean we forget how to do wrong. And oftentimes, sin gets the best of us. It might not look exactly like David's sin, but in principle, it's just the same. We get spiritually lazy. Then we lose our sense of vigilance. We, we stop putting on an arm, the armor of God. We stop resisting the devil. We begin relaxing in our Christian life to the point where we're not putting on Jesus. And we start making provision for the flesh. And then temptation creeps in. It's called lust. That's the growing desire in us that is unique to, the, to our bend, our sinful bend. And it's a desire for something wrong or something in the wrong proportion Lust isn't always something sexual in nature. We can wrongfully desire revenge. We can desire more money. We can desire acceptance. We can desire possessions. We can desire success. We can lust after accomplishment and productivity. Lust starts small, but if we don't deal with it, it grows. James chapter 1 is is, is the, the popular passage about how lust is used within the metaphor or the analogy of a pregnant woman. Uh, how how that, that, that a baby in a, in a mother's womb, as it's fed and as it's nourished, it grows to the point where it has to come out. And, and lust is the same way. If it's not eradicated from your heart, it'll eventually grow to the point where sin is conceived. It will grow to the point where you want what you want so badly that nothing can stop you from getting it. Then you sin. Then you give in. Now, now sin is obviously bad. Chances are upstairs in one of the corners of this room that one teacher is telling our kids right now, don't sin. Sin is a bad thing. It's not okay. And I would certainly agree with that. But tonight's message is not necessarily about the act of sin. Tonight's message is about what we are to do in the moments following our sin. You see, by nature, we're hardwired to hide and conceal our sin and cover up our sin. Maybe justify it or, 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 or deny it or, or minimize it. Instead, though, here's the challenge tonight. We should do immediately, after we sin, we should do immediately what took David a year to do. And that is pray through our sin. Not pray about it, because oftentimes that's remorse. Pray through it to the point where we reach a sense of godly and biblical repentance. If you're thinking to yourself, well, Psalms 51 is a prayer that I'm to pray, well, after a major sin of my life. Well, that's really not the point. Psalms 51 is a prayer that you can pray after any sin in your life. Not some major episode like an affair, but, but even a daily sin of your speech or a daily sin of your thoughts. Anything like that. I, I, I think sometimes we... We, we categorize our sins, don't we? And so our level of prayer matches our level of sin. Hey, Christ died for it all. He had to die for it all. It all breaks up your fellowship and hurts your fellowship with the Father. Our sin, all of it needs to be dealt with with an equal amount of seriousness and prayer and seeking the forgiveness of the Lord. As we study tonight, we're going to find 
Four ways to pray through sin. Here's the first. Understand the depth of your sin. Understand the depth of your sin. Let's read the first six verses of Psalms 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Now let's study this a little bit. Three words that David chose to open his prayer with that reveal that he understood the depth, the, de- the depravity of his sin. And that's the words transgressions, the, the, the word iniquity, and the word sin. The word transgressions is interesting. It points to a revolt against God. And that's not a word we use very often, but it is a very strong word. We, we see revolts going on right now in, in bigger cities. We, 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 we see uh, folks coming and, and some of it is, is a peaceful revolt, but most of it is not. And that's the picture of a transgression. It is, it is revolting. Uh, against something. And when we sin, David is saying, this is what we do. We, we literally revolt against the Lord. He used the word iniquities. You know what that, that, that word means? It's, it's describing uh, the, the twisting of, of God's original design. And that's what took place on that night with David and Bathsheba. It, it was the twisting of God's divine plan for the sexual relationship to stay in the bounds of marriage. It was iniquity. The word sin simply means missing the mark. Of God's holiness. So between the three words, David acknowledges the depth of his sin at least seven to eight times in the first four verses alone. The the point is, is that David didn't call what he did a blunder. He didn't call it an oversight. Or a misstep. Or a mistake. Or an error. Or a lack of judgment. Or a weak moment. Or simply peer pressure. He called it what it was. Sin iniquity, transgressions. He understood the depth of it. And I want you to notice in the first four verses how many times David uses the personal pronouns I, me, and my. Look at your Bible. In verse one, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David is demonstrating personal responsibility. He didn't blame his temptation. He didn't blame his sex drive. He didn't blame his environment. He didn't blame Bathsheba. Or his stress as a leader. Or he didn't blame the devil. He blamed himself. Listen church, when you sin, when I sin, we are not victims, we are volunteers. Nobody is to blame but us. David continues dealing with the death of his sin in prayer by acknowledging the focal point of his sin. Did you see what verse 4 said? Against thee, the only have I sinned. Question, how could David say... That is, sin was against God only. What about Bathsheba? Or Uriah? 
or the baby who died as a result? What about David's family? What about her family? What about the nation? Well, certainly David sins against all of them and to the degree it was possible. He needed to seek their forgiveness and make things right. And while that's appropriate and necessary, and I'll talk about that at the end of the message, genuine repentance, listen to me, is most horrified over sin because of a fresh view of God in his holiness. Our sin is first and foremost an assault on God. All of that that I just pointed out, put it together. What David called sin, transgressions, iniquities, uh, the, the personal blame that David took for his sin. When so many leaders, when caught in a, in a public sin like that, excuse it away. And then the focal point of a sin, being a holy God, all of that points to the fact that praying through our sin begins with understanding the depth of our sin. Listen, it is a big deal. Did you hear me? Sin's a big deal. And I know that, that, that in a lot of pulpits, it's, it's not being preached as though it's a big deal. It's being called mistakes and errors and lack of judgment. But when we sin, listen, we revolt against a holy God. We twist God's plan in whatever that area of sin that we chose to partake in. So, so it begins with understanding the depth of our sin. But understand this, number two, the depth of your need. The depth of your need. Now we're going to study a little bit, and I just want you to keep looking at your Bible, then looking up and looking at your Bible and looking up. So I hope your neck is nice and loose tonight. Look at the last part of verse 1. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He said blot them out. That's what he needed God to do. And this isn't just like a quick forgive me prayer. The word blot is used to describe the effect of the flood upon the earth in Noah's day. What God did there was he, he totally erased something from the record. That's what the word blot means. It was used to describe what he used water to do in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. He, he literally erased everything and started over. David was begging God to erase his sin from the record. In the, in the ancient world, writing was done, you know, on leather scrolls. They, they say that erasers were difficult to make. and It, it involved sponging the ink, ink off of the scroll with water. It took a lot of time and a lot of effort until every trace was gone. And this is what David was asking God to do with his sin. It was a deep need. Look at verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly. From my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. You study that word washed and it, and it describes in that day it was commonly used to describe the, the cleaning of clothes that had, that had been contaminated by disease like, like, like leprosy. So when we, when, we, when we see that David's saying, God, wash me, don't picture like a modern washing machine set to the gentle cycle that washes delicate fabrics. Rather, the image is of a Palestinian woman hunched along a riverbank, beating the filth from her contaminated fabric with a rock. David is asking God to do that. Remove the filth of my sin. And it's a serious act. It's an unpleasant business. Verse 7, look down at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What's that all about? Well, he is is borrowing from like a a figurative tradition 
that, that was part of the ceremonies of the Mosaic law. The, the hyssop was a common Palestinian herb that they say sprouted on walls. It was used kind of a, as a sprinkler of sorts in the ceremonial cleansing of the leper. And David prayed for cleansing, which would do for his soul what the hyssop did ceremonial for the, ceremonially for, for the leper. I mean, this is a big deal. Look at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that thy bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Think about this. He, he had become deaf to all sounds of joy because of his sin. I mean, this is the harpist. The musician David, once he had been able to take his harp and make the halls of his palace ring with, with joy and gladness and, and beautiful music. No more though, at least not for a year. His harp had been collecting dust. Now his inner agony was as great as the physical agony of broken bones. And he was praying for God to heal him of this deep sense of aching that this sin had caused his life. That's what he needed. Look at verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. You see, he said, hide, hide thy face. Now you know that, that, that it's a terrible thing. To be found out in a sin. We, we see it on the news all the time when, when, when people, especially a famous person, is arrested and, and accused of some wrongdoing. They have to hide their faces from the cameras. They do that in a number of ways, but hold their coats up or their arms up or their bodyguards shield them or their lawyer shields them. Because the disgrace of their sin is absolutely shameful. But David's sense of disgrace went far deeper than that. He was not just ashamed of what man might think. He was ashamed that he had been seen by God in his sin. And he said, God, I need you to blot this sin out of my record, out of my life, so that I can lift up my head again without feeling ashamed. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me find it interesting that the word create is the same exact Hebrew word that the author used to describe how God created the heaven and the earth in Genesis 1.1. It's the word bara. It literally means to create something out of nothing. You understand that God literally said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the idea that David is saying here. In other words, he wanted a new heart. He didn't want his old heart changed. He, didn't want a heart, he wanted a heart transplant. Not a stint put in. If he was to be kept from, from sinning in the future, he knew that a radical creative work had to be done in the deepest parts of his soul. It was not just restoration David needed. He needed regeneration. He wanted a new heart. A clean heart. Not a band-aid put on a sinful heart. Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You read that right. David prayed that he wouldn't lose the Holy Spirit. Now, now, now we know that the New Testament believer cannot lose the Holy Spirit because that would imply that we can lose our salvation. When Jesus introduced the Holy Spirit to the disciples in John 14, here's what he told them. The Holy Spirit will come to reside in you forever. It's permanent indwelling. But David didn't know that. 
In fact, the Old Testament authors weren't fully aware and knowledgeable of the Holy Spirit as we are today. David likely equated the presence of the Spirit as the blessing and, and favor of God in his life. All he knew was this. I have felt at one point the Holy Spirit and now I don't. We would know it today as quenching the Spirit of God. But David wasn't aware of that New Testament theology. You know what his reference point was? King Saul. He had seen the Spirit of God be put upon him and then taken off of him. And then tormented with an evil spirit because of his sin. And so David has that reference point. And, and, and I, I wish that David had his full theology of the Spirit of God in that day. But he didn't. And so his prayer was very honest. God, I don't want to lose my relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I certainly don't want you to remove it and then replace it with the evil spirit like you did King Saul. In our day, we would say this. God, I don't, I don't want to lose the power of the Spirit of my life. I don't want to lose my sensitivity to the Spirit in my life because sin does that, doesn't it? It numbs us to the Spirit's working in us. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. He's depressed. He's like, I don't want to be depressed anymore. Now, not all depression is, is caused by sin. I want you to know that, but David knew that his depression was a result of his sin. And he begged God to restore in him the joy of his salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. Yeah, the word used for joy here, it comes from two Hebrew words. It's really poetic in language. One meaning bright and one meaning lily, as in the flower. So, so David, in essence, is, is like poetically praying for God to give him his joy back to the point where, where, where he is like bright and, and as beautiful as a Palestinian lily. I looked at some pictures of the Palestinian lily. And I looked up how, how, how biblical commentators would describe him. One said that the, the Palestinian lily was indescribably lovely. Like it was beautiful. And it makes sense. God clothed the lily of the field. Everything he makes is beautiful. And David has said, man, I, I have been so suppressed and depressed on the inside that, man, I need a bloom again. I need life again. I need beauty again. I need radiance again. Do you see the depth of David's need? Did you study that with me? Because oftentimes in prayer, all we do is say something like this. God, I know I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Thank you. Amen. And we're done. We don't take the time to really understand how deep our need is after we sin. We take the forgiveness of God for granted. We hear verses like, if you'll confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so it sounds so simple. And so all we do is confess and move on. And I'm not saying that God doesn't hear that or respond to that if our heart's right. And I'm not saying that we need to write an entire psalm every time we sin. I'm just, I'm just saying that, that, that as you, can, you, you, you try to develop a habit of praying through sin, it's not just God, I'm sorry, amen, and go on with your day. No, no, repentance is understanding the, the, the depth of your need. You need God to blot it out. You need God to, 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 to totally wash you clean. You need to be purged with hyssop. You don't just need a little white out. You don't need a mulligan or a do-over 
or a backspace button. You need the ache in your heart to be healed. You need the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to be revived. You need a whole new heart. You need a renewed spirit. Are you with me? God, help us to pray, not just through the depth of our sin, but the depth of our need after we sin. Thirdly, here's what you should do. Understand the depth of your responsibility. In verse 13, David begins to display a different tone and attitude. And I want to tell you why before I read it, because forgiveness brings accountability. With restored fellowship comes responsibility. Look at verse 13. Then, well, that's signifying that it's after what's taken place. When I understand the depth of my sin and the depth of my need for forgiveness, and I've asked for that from the Lord, then, after I've been made right with God, will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David knew that he had a responsibility to warn others. And nobody can warn others more effectively of sin than the one who has sinned and been restored. Okay, this is not about glorifying your sin, but if you've received the grace of God in your life, listen to me, friend, you have the responsibility of helping others stay away from the sin that is trying to destroy their life. That means if you've fallen into sexual sin, but God has forgiven you and restored you, and you've remained remain free from that sin, then you should look for opportunities to help others get free from that sexual sin. If you've overcome the sin of bitterness and you've been able to forgive a very deep hurt and deep betrayal, it would do others well to have someone come alongside of them who knows what it's like to be deeply hurt and deeply embittered, but to also know God's forgiveness and grace. They need to know how you overcame bitterness because in the middle of their hurt, they don't think it's possible to forgive and move on. If you've overcome the sin of anger in your life by God's grace, you are obligated, you have the responsibility to help somebody else overcome the sin of anger and to keep others from being overcome by its devastation and its embarrassing consequences. Are you hearing me? If God has forgiven you, you should be burdened with the responsibility to help others know and embrace and experience His forgiveness in their life. It continues in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth praise. David didn't even feel the, just didn't feel the responsibility of warning others. He felt the responsibility to praise the Lord. It reminds me of, uh, of probably the most famous Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. You know, it's written by... John Wesley, who, who had just, just been overcome by sin. And that song of praise that he wrote was really from the overflow of praise in his heart for God's grace in his life. Amazing grace. I love the last verse. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It makes sense why David would want to praise the Lord and even feel obligated to do so. Think about it. His lips have been sealed for a year. A year. Covering up his sin made him keep his mouth shut for a long time. All of his genuine praise was suppressed. And if he did praise in the temple, he felt like a hypocrite. But now he's forgiven. 
He's not hiding his sin anymore. He can freely speak and sing of God's goodness without feeling like an utter fraud. And he's like, man, this feels good to go into church and sing and be right with God while I'm doing it. If you've experienced the forgiveness and grace of God in your life, you have the responsibility to praise him for it. That's why, church, listen, that's why our corporate worship through music is so important. It is not filler time. And I'm sorry, this is a a broken record, but I'm going to just keep breaking it. Because because it is not a time when we look around and it's not a time when, when we get distracted and it's not a time when we just listen to others do their thing. It's a time, an opportunity for us to praise God for His grace. To praise God for His forgiveness. And man, I just, I know I'm partial, but I just feel like every service here, um, it, it just makes it easy for people to participate. It's well rehearsed. Most of the time you have the lyrics you need. We have great sound people to give you the sounds you need. We've got great leaders that, that lead us and, and a choir that sings great. And it's like, man, we, we put everything on a silver platter here for just good corporate worship. And it is good corporate worship every single week. I just want to encourage you that, that you have the mindset that, hey, you know what? Whenever Brother Mike gets up and leads us in singing, I need to feel obligated to participate. Whether I can sing or not, it's not, not, not the issue. The righteous does sing and rejoice. If you are living right with God, there is a song to be sung David felt obligated to warn others. He felt obligated to praise the Lord. Verse 16 and 17 say David felt responsible to stay broken. Verse 16 and 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Listen closely. The only thing harder than being broken is staying broken. And here's why. Because when you're forgiven by a good God, over time you tend to hear this whisper. You're doing okay now. You've got your life back together now. God's forgiven you. You can kind of just dab back in that sin just a little bit. You can go back to normal now. Hey, if we aren't careful, we'll slip right back into the pattern of laziness, lust, and lies. And we will come to church and give our sacrifices. But our heart will not be broken. It won't be contrite. And we will slip right back into that sin. Staying in the posture of brokenness is what keeps us from having repeatable Psalm 51 moments. Do you get that? We sin less when we are broken. We sin less when we are contrite. We sin less when when our attitude about sin is where it needs to be. The reason why we get into sin in the first place is because we lose that sense of brokenness over sin. And humility over sin. 
and seriousness towards sin. And David said, yes, I've been forgiven, but this one thing I feel obligated to do, stay broken. David said, I, 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 when Nathan pointed his finger at me and said, David, you're the man. You have sinned. It was you. You're covering up. You're hiding it. When he did that, David instantly was broken. That, that passage of scripture said that he fasted for days. We saw his brokenness when he asked God to purge him and clean him and wash him. And David said, I don't want to lose this. Have you ever been there before at a revival meeting or a powerful sermon that God used in your life and you found yourself broken at an altar and you go home that night and you think in your heart, why can't I stay this way? Why can't I keep the spirit why is it that the pattern of my life is to, let, is, is, is to get broken over my sin and then get comfortable with my sin and then get broken again with my sin and then get comfortable with my sin? Why is that my pattern? Here's why. Here's why. Listen, the way we stay broken is, is we have a proper view of ourself and a proper view of God. We orient ourselves to the fact that we are weak and we are prone to wonder and we are prone to fall and do really dumb things. That doesn't mean you look in the mirror and say, you're not worth anything. Oh, you're worth a lot to God. That's not the point. But you understand that compared to God, you are broken. And you are messed up and so am I. But then you also orient yourself to who God is. He's majestic. He's awesome. He's holy. He's powerful. He's loving. He's merciful. He's gracious. And I should not sin against him and feel okay about it. You have a responsibility to stay broken. Praying through our sin involves understanding the death of our sin, the death of our need, the death of our responsibility. Let me give you one more to be quick. Understand the death of the repercussions. Verse 18 and verse 19, David says, Do good in thy good pleasure, not unto me, not unto my family, unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thy altar. I want you to notice something in here, that David extended his prayer beyond himself. He asked for God to do good to all his people. And here's why. He knew that the consequences of his sin, being the, be, be, being the king of Israel, would extend far beyond himself. Have you ever threw a small rock into a big pond? You ever done that as a kid? You ever done that with your kids? And when that rock hits the water, what happens? It begins a ripple effect. And you see one ring after another, and they keep extending and getting larger. And it's amazing that one little rock can cause so many rings and ripples in the water, and that's exactly the case with David's sin. The rippling effect of his sin extended past himself and into his family for generations to come. I mean, you study his family and they put the fun in dysfunctional. They're rough. And it was because of David's sin, this particular sin. Listen, we haven't prayed through our sin until we've realized the far-reaching effects that it's had on those around us and until we stop for a second and beg God for His mercy, not just on us, but on those around us that we've hurt. 
And here's the good news, that, that there's no denying the effect our sin has on others. But if our sin affects others, listen, there's hope because our prayer affects others too. Our prayer, I'm confident in saying this, may very well minimize the collateral damage that our sin has on those around us. We just have to care enough to, 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 to pray about those we've hurt and pray through the potential repercussions. So as you can see tonight, praying through sin really isn't simple, is it? It's not, there's nothing simple about this psalm. I know we've, we've worked hard at studying it. But I've done that to let you know that it's not quick. It's not easy. But if we will pray through our sin like David prayed through his sin, it doesn't have to be the same exact words, but the same spirit. Here's the wonderful promise. God will forgive us every single time. And he won't just forgive us. He'll cast it as far as the east is from the west. And he won't just do that. He'll choose to, to remember our sin no more. That's called amazing grace. Amazing, amazing grace. Yeah. Here's the Psalms 51 prayer summed up. Understand the depth of your sin. What is the depth of it? It's a transgression. It's an iniquity, a revolt and a twisting of God's plan. It's against God. That is the primary victim of your sin. And it is your fault. It's your fault. Understand the depth of your need. What is your need? It needs to be blotted out. Washed clean. You need to have your joy restored. You don't need a band-aid on a wounded heart. You need a new heart. Understand the depth of your responsibility. I need to help others. Boy, I need to lift my voice in praise. And God help me, I need to stay broken. And then understand the depth of the repercussions. Pray for God's mercy and goodness to extend beyond yourself and to those your sin has hurt the most. At that point, I think we can say like David, we have prayed through our sin. The last time you sinned against God, did your prayer resemble any of that? The last time that something came out of your mouth in a very hateful way, Angry way, bitter way, gossiping way, cursing way. Did your prayer resemble that spirit? Whenever you went through a season of life, a week or a month or longer, not reading your Bible, not praying, no communion with God. Did your prayer of repentance resemble any of that? I could start naming all these specific sins, but you get the idea. I want to know, I, I, I'm asking tonight rhetorically, do you pray like this? Is your spirit towards sin, is it reflected in your habit of prayer? I had to ask myself that question. Because up to this point in my life, by God's grace, there hasn't been like a 2 Samuel 11 affair type moment for me. Doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. Doesn't mean your sin's bigger than mine. I probably sin more than most of you. 
but my sin a lot of times isn't in a way that, well, it would naturally break me. Are you with me? You know what my sin is? I had a long day and I go take it out on my husband. Oh, my husband. Woo! That was before Christ. Uh, on, my, on my wife and my son. Short, irritable, not present. My sin is that I lose my temper when something doesn't go right in a church service. I, 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 I just get upset about that. My sin is that I, I just get self-sufficient sometimes. And so in my life, as that's the pattern of, of how I let God down, it's very easy for me. No, it's on my prayer list. Confession is on my prayer list. I literally have that word typed out. Like, forgive me of my sin, the model prayer. Like, that's in there. But here's my tendency to not go about praying for the forgiveness of my sin with the spirit of Psalms 51. For simply to, yes, I recognize my sin, but I simply say, God, would you forgive me? And I say this sometimes. I don't know why. I think I heard an old person praying like this when I was little or something. Forgive me of my shortcomings. Shortcomings? I've never said transgression. I've never said iniquity. I say sin. I've never said, God, would you blot out my transgressions? I've never admitted in prayer, I have revolted against you rebelliously. You know why? Because after I go home and, and I'm a jerk, I, I ask forgiveness and the next morning I pray and I say, God, help me not to do that again. I'm just not broken about it. I'm not. The point is it shouldn't take a 2 Samuel 11 type of sin to bring us to a Psalms 51 spirit in prayer. That's the point. And, and we should have such a sensitivity to our God and His holiness. That at the end or the beginning of each day, we have the Spirit in our prayer closet of Psalms 51. God, search me. Know my heart. Is there anything in my relationships, God, that, that I need to be broken about the way I'm treating my wife? Wives, the way I'm treating my husband. The way I'm parenting, the way I'm spending or saving money, the the way I'm tithing and giving offerings or not, the way I'm involved in church, the way I'm dealing with this broken relationship, the way I'm conducting myself at work around the boss or when the boss is not in the room. God, would you help me to see, is there anything that is breaking your heart that should be breaking mine? Not just a little line item on our prayer list. That's my burden tonight. God, give us a psalm. 51 spirit every single day. And this is a good time. Virginia, would you go to the piano? This is a good time for us to renew that. So, so if, if, if God has spoken to your heart about a specific sin, then this is a great time to begin this spirit of prayer. But if you're like me and you try your best to stay right with God and there's not any recent 2 Samuel 11 moments in your life, then here's what we need to do. We need to come and say, God, help us to stay broken over what we deem to be little sins. 
That's what we need. Our, we need that. God, God, help us. Would you stand to your feet?